leading us in worship this morning. Good morning, church. Happy St. Patrick's Day. How many of you remembered your green? Raise your hand if you have something green on intentionally. All right, a handful of you. I actually thought about it. I have a green tie, but it didn't match anything else I could wear today, so I decided not to wear it. I thought it might be more of a distraction than a help. Maybe I should have supported those of you who came with intention. Um, I don't know what, how much you know about uh, this person whose life is celebrated today, but um, was originally a captive uh, of pirates. It's this very swashbuckling sort of a start. He was captured by Irish pirates and taken to Ireland. And um, there, as in his own descriptions, he, uh, he gave himself fully to God. And during that time of tremendous stress, actually chose to, uh, to follow God with his full heart and full life. And um, finally, after about six years, was able to escape the Irish pirates and make his way back home. One of the, one of the great uh, ironies of the patron saint of, Scotland, or of Ireland is that he's not Irish. He may actually be British, though no one wants to admit that in Ireland. Uh, the Irish say he's definitely Welsh, not British. But there's still some question historically. But after being home for a while, his heart began to ache for the people of Ireland. He began to really feel their need of Jesus. And so decided to return to the chagrin of people who knew him and loved him. They said, just just crazy, don't do that. Don't go back there. They're a bunch of crazy barbarians. And uh, he decided he was going to go anyway. One of the earliest non-disciple uh, missionaries, certainly by the time of his, uh, his life in the 5th century or so. This is one of the few people who's going on any kind of a missionary journey. And he goes across the border uh, into the hostile lands of Ireland. And he spends the next 30 years of his life uh, ministering in Ireland, where he, where he eventually passed away. The, the outgrowth of that ministry is the Irish Celtic Church and really the founding of, the, of Christianity in Ireland. And uh, the, the, the growth of that has many, 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 many roots that go out into uh, the, the world, not just the, the island of Great Britain. I thought since, we were, since it was St. Patrick's Day today, we should at least know something about the person whose name is on the holiday and not just think it's all about the green. Now, the green is significant, but we won't worry about that today. Just remember who he was. He was a, he was a besainted missionary to Ireland, go, going there at great risk to himself and returning to a place where he had, in fact, been a captive in his original uh, arrival there. Something else that's happened this week. Did you hear the announcement this week that they printed a house? Anybody hear that? Did you hear about this? Yeah, they, they, uh, you know about 3D printing now, right? You've heard about 3D printing. Do you know what it is? It, layers of things are laid down. You can use plastics of various kinds. They can actually do ty- titanium. Well, this house was made by a large 3D printer laying down extruded little sections, oh, probably about an inch in diameter, of, of cement, just laying down layer upon layer upon layer of cement, an 800-square-foot house. Now, that's not a giant house, but it was printed. Just let your mind get around that for a second. 
it was printed. A machine built the house. Now, if you were to, to go online, I would suggest you do and take a look at it and uh, hear a little bit of the news stories and things. You'll find that there are somebody put doors in it and windows in it and a roof on it that was clearly not printed. These were, if they were printed, they were printed by God because they're made of wood. So God printed them in a tree and then eventually they made it, they made their way into the house. But uh, it's a very interesting, interesting outcome, a very interesting uh, sort of bit of news um, as we kind of talk at, about the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Does anyone know the very end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, sort of his last concluding statement? Do you remember what the topic of that last element is? It's about building. Interesting that this week there, that we would come across the same thing. It's about building. It's about construction. Let's pray. Lord, we have just joined together as a congregation to pray, but as we open your word, we ask a special blessing upon our understanding, upon the leadership of your Holy Spirit for us. We ask that the time we spend here would draw us closer to you, that you would seize this moment in the authority of the Holy Spirit and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the building of the life. Now, remember, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. We have been for a while. Was anyone here last week? Oh, good. A couple of you came here last week. So uh, those of you who are here last week, you know we kind of reviewed that Sermon on the Mount. We kind of started at the beginning and walked our way through it. This is going to be a little bit of that same thing, but we, we were looking at an entire sermon. We usually break this thing down into little bits and pieces, and we have been doing that. We've been taking chunks of it and sort of defining and understanding and looking at those but um, a sermon, if, a, if, a, if it's a good one, a, the sermon starts with the end in mind. Did you know that about sermons? That, that you start with the end in mind. If you're telling a story, don't you usually start that story with the end in mind? If you're telling a joke, don't you start that story with the punchline in mind? Same thing is true of a good sermon. A sermon starts with the end in mind. So Jesus had this conclusion as he is moving toward it, this conclusion is a part of what Jesus has in mind as he's moving through what he's discussing. So if that is true, then we should see this, the, the particulars of this sort of coming to light in the rest. And so we want to we want to get you to the end first and get to that last phrase. And it's Jesus saying, if you will build your life on what I say, it'll be like building your house on a rock. And the wind will blow because everybody has the winds blow in their life. And sometimes it'll lift your kite. And the rains will fall and the floods will come. But if you build your house on the solid foundation, if you build your house on the rock, then your house will stand. I was, uh, I was looking at some, some discussions about this and uh, somebody was talking about buying a house at the beach. Anybody ever wanted to have a house on the beach? Anybody ever wanted to have, have a house on the beach? You ever notice that when you see what's being built on the beach, surfers build little little houses on the beach. You ever notice that they're shanties, they're shacks, they're not actually houses? Because the beach won't really support a house. And if it does support the house, the water will soon take the house away. The person who was talking about buying a house at the beach, he said, if you buy a house at the beach, you want to buy an old house. Let that sit with you for a minute. Because you want to buy the house that's already survived the storms. That's already been through difficult things and is still standing. 
You don't want to buy the house in the pathway of the river that they covered up in order to make this happen because the infill under your house will mean your house will go away. So if you're thinking about buying a house at the beach, that's your retirement plan, buy an old one. You can fix up the house, but that foundation becomes really important to the survival of that house. So when, we're, in, when Jesus is describing this to us, he says everybody's going to face storms. Everybody's going to see wind, rain, floods. It's going to happen to you. Is that a given? Is that an understanding? Has anybody come into their Christian experiencing expecting that, experience expecting that nothing bad is ever going to happen after this? Some of us have. Some folks, when that, we, we, we think, that, okay, now I've just decided to follow Jesus. I've been baptized. Nothing bad is ever going to happen to me again. Do you know anybody who, for whom that has been true? I don't. Often it seems to me the devil turns up the heat when you start publicly proclaiming your desire to follow Jesus. So Jesus' description, Jesus is always honest with us. Jesus' description of the life built on the rock is that it will stand even though there are storms. And that's the only difference. The storms come to both, but this one stands because it's founded on the rock. So we're going to do, as we did before, a quick summary of some things. It'll be a little quicker this week than last week. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount starts out with a sort of flipping the world upside down. The very first thing he does is take the pancake and flip it over. The first thing he does is take the cultural understanding of the Romans and the Greeks and the religious understanding of, of the Jews and flips it over. And he starts out by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Nobody thinks that's good. Nobody at this point is thinking, put people who are spiritually in poverty, that's not good. Being spiritually in poverty is a bad thing in anybody's definition. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Because that is what makes you recognize your need for God. And if you read the, the Beatitudes carefully, this opening illustration of Jesus, he starts with the poor in spirit get the kingdom of God, and then he works through an entire process that looks, looks to me like a conversion process, and when he finishes, he wraps it up by saying they have the kingdom of God. You know what he's saying? Is when you turn for home, you have the kingdom. It's as if you've already arrived. Your father meets you out on the road, And wherever your father meets you, the assurance of the kingdom is present. He walks you all the way home. And what you find at the home is what was true at the beginning is true at the end. The kingdom is yours. He turns the thinking of the world he lives in upside down. The people believe that getting the kingdom of God was the reward of a life perfectly led. And he says, no, it's the reward of a person who recognizes they need it. And they start heading for home. Secondly, he says, the standard of righteousness that has been described by everyone around you, the standard of righteousness, these little baby step rules that you're supposed to follow to earn and discover perfect righteousness, they don't work. They've been teaching you that there's an there's a opportunity to just, to just break God down into little pieces that you can measure yourself against. And as you, as you stack up enough of these little pieces, one day you're going to, not pizzas, pieces, one day you're going to reach the top of the ladder and you'll be good and God will take you home. That was the way they described it. That's the way everybody was striving after their relationship with God. Pastor Tim and I had a little conversation about this. And I, want you, I, I wanted to stop and make this less, in, less uh, black and white. 
If you were a a leader of the church and the Romans and the Greeks had been bringing their culture down on the heads of the church for the past few centuries, and the church was losing its religious identity, and you started saying, how could I get these people back on track? Do you think you might try to break it down into bite-sized pieces for them? I would. I do it currently. That's what I try to do. Let's break it down into edible smaller pieces so that we can easily deal with it and digest it and apply it in our specific life. The problem was the initial understanding. The initial understanding had no covering of God's grace. And without the covering of God's grace, the, the, the direct result is, a, is an attempt to make the rules palatable so that I can achieve them. And so you break them down into smaller and smaller pieces and you start saying, oh, well, that's easy enough then. If I sew my hanky on my sleeve and blow my nose on my sleeve, then I haven't broken the Sabbath. I'm good. And you start breaking it down into smaller and smaller pieces. And your God gets smaller and smaller like your pieces. And eventually, what has started out with good intention becomes legalism, which is nothing more than man's ability to control God. And now you've become pagan. And now you're sitting in the garden, looking up at a tree, and the devil says, follow me and I'll make you like God. You see the problem? They start at the wrong place. And they start in the wrong direction. And even with the best intent, they end up in the wrong, with the wrong set of rules. Jesus says, no, the the goal of God is the absolute transformation of your heart. And it's so high that you will recognize your spiritual poverty. Now we're back to the beginning of the sermon. It's so high that you'll recognize your spiritual poverty. Throw yourself on my mercy and then I will see that you get home. And then Jesus moves on to the personal practices of faith. And he removes them from the performance stage. And he moves them into the closet where God can get hold of us and really do something in our lives. Don't pray out in public so people will see you praying. You're getting your whole reward. If that's all you want is people to see you praying, great, good for you. You got what you wanted. Don't don't ring a bell when you're going to give your offering so everybody can see how much you put in. If that's what you want, that's all you're going to get out of that offering. It's not going to touch you. It's not going to change you. It's not going to transform you. But if you give your offering in secret where only you and God know, it touches your heart. And it strains that, that selfishness that's born inside of you. And as it strains against that selfishness, it actually begins to change who you are. So say your prayers to God in a way, in a place that no one really sees. Give your offerings without raising a big noise about it. And when you fast, comb your hair. I'd love to do that. (laughs) Tim and I are going to fast in heaven just so we can comb our hair. Long, flowing locks of hair. (laughs) And then he begins to talk about the goals of our life. And I want to sum up the, all these descriptions of where your treasure is and all that kind of stuff with a simple statement. Moses has said, you shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus says, that not only is that true, but you shall have no other goals before me. 
Now, if you took that one thing and threw it into the mix of your life today, how would it change your goals? How would it change the way you're going about life right now? Would it have any impact on you if, if goal number one was Jesus from now on? How would it change and influence what else you're doing? What other goals are in your life? I mean, a lot of us are striving for goals. It's kind of like the American way, right? We, we set goals. We, we strive for those goals. We find one, find that one completed and we set another one and we strive for that one. And we think it's, that's the, that's the most significant thing you can do. You gotta be growing. You gotta keep moving, right? And I'm not saying sleep on your couch and eat bonbons for the rest of your life. What I am saying, by the way, I think that'll shorten your life considerably. What I am saying, is goal number one still has to be the kingdom. Goal number one still has to be Jesus. Whether you're a college student, whether you're a junior high, whether you're uh, preparing yourself for heaven because you can see Jesus coming around the corner, whether you're in the middle of your work life, no matter where you are in your life, number one goal still has to be the kingdom. You know what's crazy about this? You know who sets kingdom goals? Those who have either faced death down and won, or those facing death currently. Isn't that terrible? When you were 21, 22, life was just in full bloom for you. You were just, man, you were just, you were just getting hold of the reins your parents had been holding all this time. What were your goals? Do you remember? Can, can some of us who are old enough remember what the goals were when you were 21? Maybe some of us young fellas didn't actually have goals other than to find a woman. So once that happened, then what were your goals? Can you remember? Some of you are still in that moment, that cusp of the beginning of your life. What are your goals? Is, a, is the kingdom on the top? Is Jesus on the top? That's what he's saying. He's saying, you shouldn't have any goals ahead of me. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. If I am your deepest treasure, your heart will follow. And your heart will follow me. Jesus continues in our practice and he says, here's how you should live the life of, of a believer. Don't worry. Is this, a, is this a new thought with Jesus? Have you, have you run across it in the Psalms? Have you run across it before? Is there, is there a theme in Scripture about not worrying? Does worrying gain you anything? No, Jesus says, how many of you can, uh, can add one bit of height to yourself by worrying about how short you are? How many of you can make your hair grow back? I hate to keep coming back to this theme, but it is a theme. How many of you can change one element of your life in your day by worrying? He's saying worrying is a waste of time. Pray, that'll do something. Don't worry. Don't judge. Don't judge. Now, remember, this is all based at this point on, on your righteousness must be better than that of the Pharisees. And he says, don't judge. Because the simple thing for us to do is to measure ourselves against each other. Right? You got, you're easy for me to measure myself against because you sit here in front of me. I see you. I talk to you. I walk with you. I spend time with you. And it's easiest for me to, to measure myself against you. He says, don't measure yourself against each other. Measure yourself against God. And then what will you do when you measure yourself against God? You'll recognize your spiritual poverty and fall on my mercy. And then I will get you home. You see the process? 
full transformation of the heart. That's the goal. And when you realize you're not going to be able to do that on your own, what are you going to do? You're going to fall on my mercy, recognize your spiritual poverty, and then I will get you home. This is the kingdom's upside-down understanding of how things work. Jesus says, don't worry, don't judge, don't, don't, don't let your standard be some other puny human being, by the way. Let it be me. And then he says, when you find yourself struggling, pray. Pray without ceasing. Continue in praying. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Keep coming to me. Over and over again, when you find yourself in the hole again, pray. When you find yourself struggling again, pray. When you find yourself recognize your spiritual poverty, pray. When you find yourself unable to overcome that, that struggle, that sin, that, that thing that wants to always take my place, pray. And I'll answer that call. This is, again, I told you last week, this is not a promise to answer every single prayer you ever prayed. And most of you who have lived long enough in your prayer life are glad that that is true. Because you've prayed for dumb things before. Right? Great country song. Some of the best gifts from God are unanswered prayer. See, country music will teach you things if you'll pay attention. <laughs> teach you some good things, teach you some bad things, but it'll teach you some things. So now we get to Jesus' conclusion. Now we get to Jesus' conclusion. Last time through this sermon in this way. These are Jesus' final concluding words. Beginning of the next chapter of Jesus' final concluding actions. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And I hid it from you on purpose so that no, nobody could get into the kingdom. Is that what it says? Is that what most people think? So this is the way we look at this passage. We look at this passage and we say, Jesus made this this hole, this entrance into the kingdom, really tiny so that people couldn't find it. Right? Isn't that how we approach this? We say God is intentionally trying to limit the number of people who can get in the kingdom. I have heard people say that churches that are growing fast can't possibly be following Jesus. And then they quote this. Because the Bible says, narrow is the way and tiny little gate. I mean, nobody gets in there. It's a tiny little gate. Eye of the needle, you know. Really? So then you would go back to the book of Acts and tell the disciples, you can't be following Jesus. 3,000 people were baptized today. Strange, isn't it? Is he saying, I have intentionally made this gate small so nobody gets to find it? No. He's simply saying there's one gate. There's one way in. It's through me, and that's a tough way to go. And I recognize it's a tough way to go. And I'm being honest with you when I tell you that this is a tough way to go. It's harder to go through this gate than to choose any other option out there. Broad is the way. It's interesting that almost every town in America has a Broadway <laughs> Have you, ever, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever been down Broadway in San Francisco? Rest my case. 
He's simply saying that this way home is going to be tougher than the other options out there. You're going to have to choose to go this way. You can't just drift this way. Do you know what the lazy river is? It is my favorite water ride. Anybody else like the lazy river? Yeah, you are my people. It is, the la- it is my favorite because it is the lazy river. I don't have to climb steps to get in the lazy river, except the ones going down in the water. I don't have to worry about dying in the lazy river, like I do on some of the other things that are at the water park. I simply get into the lazy river, try not to run over any small children, get on a little inner tube, and float along. It's a beautiful thing. I don't even have to move my hands if I don't want to because the lazy river has a current and it just carries me along. This is all Jesus is saying. He's saying you're going to have to do some things. You're going to have to put forth some effort to get to this gate. You're going to have to find your way to this gate. He says few are those who find it. Do you realize the phrase find it implies looking for it? He's saying you're going to have to look for it. He begins his conclusion by saying the way I'm asking you to go is not the easiest way to go. In fact, it's going to create for you some difficulty. You're going to have to try to find it. You will have great joy when you do, but you're going to have to try. And then he gives a couple of other illustrations. To warn those trying to find the gate. You get this? Remember, we're in a sermon here. Remember, this is part of that closing illustration. He gives then a couple of points to be aware of while you're finding the gate. Beware while you're finding the gate. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit. That is by the way they act. So here's the simple picture of it. He says, look, this gate you're going for, great, go for it. It'll be awesome. I will help you. I promise you, get into, get into this and start going. I will be the motor on the back of your, of your boat. I will help you all the way home. I won't let you do this alone. I will bless you and keep you and care for you all the way, all the time. But beware, there are people who are false prophets who will point you to the wrong gate. Your righteousness must be better than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They may be trying hard, but those guys are pointing at the wrong gate. They're not pointing at the gate that leads you home. See, people are going to show up and they're going to teach you things that are going to try to lead you away. How did I know? That's kind of a scary thought. God, how do I, how do I know when I'm dealing with a false prophet? He says, just watch. Just look at them. Just be aware of them. You will know them by their fruit. Do they produce fruit that looks biblical? Does their life looks like, look like the life of someone who follows me? One of the problems we have with false prophets and people who do wild and unusual things is that we excuse their bad behavior. We excuse the bad behavior of people who have big righteous claims. 
Boy, I, I have to be a little careful about the illustration here. I knew a person a long time ago in a faraway place who claimed to have the inside understanding of what it meant to follow God. Um, he, he chastised me personally at one point. Um, whew, how much can I tell you? For eating cheese on white bread with my wife at the park for a picnic. That because I was eating cheese on white bread, Jesus was not going to be my friend. I don't know if I had been eating cheese on brown bread, if it would have been better. But that's what he told me. I knew this guy's background, and I knew this guy's life. And I knew that in spite of the fact that he was claiming a certain layer of personal righteousness because of his choices, the other half of his life wasn't so good. There were real issues in his his interactions with women. We'll just leave it at that. I know that a lot of people knew him and knew about this issue, but dismissed it because he had such great things to say. Be careful about dismissing the bad behavior of people who have really powerful voices. Be really careful about it. Because Jesus says a false prophet is most clearly identified by the fruit of their life. Be careful about who you follow. Because they may not be leading you to the gate. He then says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my father. He goes on to illustrate these people even more. He says, hey, there are going to be people doing miracles. There are going to be people who are casting out demons and doing all these things that you think are just magnificent and awesome and wonderful. These beautiful and fantastic and whatever you want to describe, however you want to describe these things, don't let the flash carry the day. Ask the simple question. Do their lives align with the revealed will of my father? Do they do, do we, do they follow the will of God with what they do? It's interesting to me that as we conclude Jesus' sermon, it brings a certain quiet in the house. Because he's warning us while you're trying to find the gate, watch out. Watch out, there are, there are some people out there that will lead you off in the wrong direction. Here's the here's what concerns me about even telling you this is because I don't want you to be afraid. Because you don't go home abandoned by the Father. You don't head for home and have complete abandonment by God. He doesn't say, okay, that's the direction. Have a nice day. He doesn't. He says, I will walk all the way home with you. I will go all the way with you. Link yourself up together with me. Put yourself in the yoke with me. Let me pull and you follow. 
The Pharisees and the Sadducees are his direct illustrations. But I think any of us and all of us know about this false prophets and prophet and fake disciples business. All of us have seen false prophets and fake disciples. All of us have experienced somebody pointing at the wrong gate. Jesus says, pay attention. They're out there. Jesus is always honest with us. Jesus always makes sure we understand what we're doing and how life is going and what we're getting ourselves into. Then he concludes, build your lives on the things I have spoken to you. Build your lives on the things I have said to you. You can trust what I've taught you. Build your lives on these things. And you'll be able to stand any storm that comes your way. I picked a picture that you can just see. See that little white dot in this picture? Last week I talked to you about uh, sailing, in particular one trip. But one of the things about sailing is that that kind of a light, it's one of the most encouraging things you ever come across. Sailing the coast of California, like a lot of coasts in the world, can be a particularly treacherous thing at night and a frightening thing at night in the fog. Because there are rocks and there are things you can run up, run up against that will destroy the boat and leave you sunken in cold water, which most of the coast that I have been on is cold. But when you're out there in that setting, scanning the horizon, the thing that most encourages is a light. Lighthouses have a pattern to them. They have a blinking pattern to them. And if you look on your chart, your charts will tell you what the blinking pattern of your lighthouse is. So if you're looking at this lighthouse and you see what looks like a flash every three seconds, you can look on your chart and you can find the one that says every three seconds while you're at Point Arena. And then you can look at the chart and say, where am I and what's in my way and how might I live or die? Because you have a fixed point to set your course by. How can I survive? Now I want to take you back into the sermon, those parts that we tell to the children all the time. He said, each of you is like a candle, a light that's been lit. When you, when you light the light, are you supposed to bury it under something or hide it? He said, oh no, you don't light the light and hide it, you hold it up so that it can be seen. See what's great about this story to me is that he says that every single person headed for the gate has a light. So everybody headed for the gate marks the way. It's like a pathway of candles leading home. 
the fellowship and the connection of the believers and the, and the connection of those believers to Jesus creates this light. Each of you has the responsibility and the blessing of being part of that light. How hard would it be to find a gate if there were a system of lights pointing right to it? You see, that's the real, the real plan. Come get close to me. Build your life on what I'm teaching you here today. And false prophets can come and you'll be fine. And false disciples can come and you'll be fine. And the wind can blow and the rain can come down and floods can try to push you off. But don't worry, you'll be fine. And you know what's really amazing about you being fine? Is the person behind you will be fine too. The first testimony to the prophetic gift in the early Seventh-day Adventist church, before it had a name, when it was still a group of people trying to find their way, confused about what had just happened, completely unaware and heartbroken because Jesus hadn't come when they thought he would. The first time that God brings a prophetic utterance into that group, it's about a light. A young woman, a 17-year-old girl, hardly, some of us, hardly someone most of us would follow home. A 17-year-old girl has this crazy experience in a prayer meeting with some other people and they're praying about this, this, this thing that's happened in their lives. Praying about the, the complete dismantling of their understanding of what God was doing at that moment in earth's history. And in the midst of this wild moment in the prayer meeting, she goes off into something like Ezekiel or Jeremiah might have experienced. And as she falls into this weird, wild, amazing trance-like state, she sees her friends, the people that she's been with as they've been trying to discover the, the truth about the coming of Jesus, which is clearly not true because he didn't come. But these people that she's been friends with and that she's loved and that she's been trying to find the way to the gate with, are all on a path. And while she's there in that dream, that trance, whatever you want to call that experience, while she's there in that moment, her friends are following Jesus. And he's just glowing. He's just a light. He's just bright. And they keep their eyes on him because the path they're on is kind of dark and hard to follow. And they just keep walking and they just keep following the light. And as, as they do, they're, they're doing great. And, it, and, and, and they make it. They, they're, they're, the climb is a climb, but they're making it. 
Every once in a while, she notices that someone gets scared, takes their eyes off Jesus, and starts trying to find their own way home. And they end up falling off the path. She wakes up and tells this story to the people around her. It becomes famous enough that we hear it today. I'm telling it to you right now. What's the point of that story? Have you ever thought, just to stop and think, is, this, is the point of this story to identify this young girl as some prophetic force? I don't think so. Here's the point of this story. To keep your eyes on Jesus. To keep your eyes on the ultimate source of the light. I love the story of the prodigal son, as many of you who come to this church know. And I love the part that's not written in the scripture. That the father rushes out on the road and has this collision out there where he throws his arms around his son, calls for him to be covered by his robe, puts the ring on his finger, wipes the smudges off his face with their mingled tears, calls for the servants to rush home and prepare for a party. And then walks every step of the way back to the house with his son. You and I get to be part of the light. But we're never alone. The day we recognize our spiritual poverty and turn for home, he meets us out on the road. And walks us home. And he teaches. And we learn. And we anchor ourselves in what we're discovering in him. And our faith becomes strong. And then it becomes solid. And then no matter what happens on the path. No matter who comes along to distract. No matter what pours out of the sky. Or comes up from beneath. We cannot be dissuaded from following all the way home. Jesus' sermon leads with the assurance that those who head home get home. And Jesus' sermon closes with the warning that this is not going to be the easiest path. But the assurance that if our lives are built and grounded and solidly connected with Him, what He teaches, we're going to get home. He who began a good work in you will see it through to the end. He won't neglect you. He won't reject you. The only way off this path is your personal decision 
He's not trying to keep you out. He's not trying to hide the gate. He's trying to help you find your way home. It would be a joy to be a link in the lights that lead to home. But if you're worried about getting there yourself, his answer is just stick with me. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize that our brokenness has a tendency to lead us away. We recognize that our curiosity causes us to often seek out false prophets. We're just listening for folks to tell us there's a shortcut. We recognize that sometimes we get discouraged because we look at our brothers and we see the weakness of their, their walk and we think, man, if this is what discipleship looks like, maybe I don't want to be a part of it. Father, help us not to build on such slippery, sandy surfaces. Help us to hold on to Jesus. To follow the brightest light. Certainly to reflect it but to see it as the ultimate. To set our course by Jesus' light. Thank you for wanting to take us home. Thank you for covering us with your grace and your mercy as we slip and fall and struggle. Thank you for the assurance that when we turn for home, the kingdom is ours. Give us the courage to stay yoked together with you. Not to bail, not to walk out, not to get off the path because we're just not sure. Help us to trust you. Jesus' name. Amen.